Well, with that, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of James in James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And let's stand together, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not, so, ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Lord, we ask for wisdom because that is what you have said through James in his letter. We ask, Lord, for wisdom to show us where we are in our capacity to have control over our tongues. May we be humble before you this morning. May your Holy Spirit have freedom to poke away in our hearts and to identify areas, Lord, where we are falling short. And, and Lord, that we would not only be convicted, but we would be motivated to move with joy toward maturity in this area. And Lord, may, may we listen for our benefits, not just for the benefit of someone else. May we see, Lord, that we all stumble in many ways. And this is one of them. So, Lord, help us today. Teach us today. Guide us today. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, isn't it? You probably have turned to here a number of times, and probably... You may have taught it to your children. You may have heard it preached on. But there's a need for us to recognize that this passage is actually set in a context. What's interesting about James is that in these 12 and actually 13 verses, there are 13 words that are only found in this letter. So he's using words that are unique to him, and they're all packaged right here in our text. This paragraph is full of images, isn't it? Fire, stains, horses, ships, helms, forests, wheels. And with all those images and illustrations, James is giving us a vivid picture of this battle that we have with our tongues. 
Now, of course, James isn't actually literally talking about this piece of flesh. If, if this piece of flesh was cut out of your mouth, in today's society in particular, you could still have a problem in this area because you still have your fingers to do the typing or to do the writing. There are ways that what's in your heart comes out. And so this is not just so much about the physical flesh, it's about what's in the heart coming out by virtue of communication, by virtue of, of words, thoughts, ideas. And once again, it's easy to see how James is building on the teaching of his older brother, Jesus, who said this, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And we could not add to Scripture, but just elaborate on the idea behind that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers type, and the pen writes, and the thumbs text, right? In fact, quite honestly, sometimes those are the areas that are far worse than what comes out of our mouth. But it's out of the heart. And so James has been talking about the importance of allowing the implanted word to bear fruit in a kind of living that gives evidence to genuine faith. Or to say it differently, James is challenging his readers to strive for Christian maturity by remaining steadfast in their trials. To remain steadfast in particular when the test of partiality faces us. To remain steadfast and allow the fruit of our faith to prove the genuineness of our faith. Now James is calling on his readers to prove their faith by bearing fruit in how they use their tongues. And so this section is very, very simply about the mature believer learning to control his tongue. Have you learned to control your tongue? Now, we might be smug. We might say, you know, I got it all together. James shows up on the scene. You know, I was thinking about this as I was talking with someone. God allowed us to go through the book of Job, and the book of Job was really God coming alongside us and putting his arm around us saying, listen, I, I want to encourage you. I'm God. Lean into me. Then we go to the book of James. And James says, come here, let me talk to you. Pow! <laughs> I mean, he just hits you hard. He says, you can't get away from this. All of us are people who struggle with partiality. All of us are people who are struggling to bear fruit that reflects the reality of our faith. And all of us are people who struggle in the arena of how we control our tongues, or don't. And so although this is familiar, I would appeal to you to let it be fresh and to humble your hearts before it. Do you have control of your tongue? Are you slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to wrath? Do people describe you as one who speaks without thinking? Are you known as the Daily Tribune because you have all the information? You don't want to be like a woman by the name of Arabella Young. When she died, this is what on, was on her tombstone. Beneath the stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. It's quite a legacy, isn't it? But the reality is that you are remembered. And one of the ways you are remembered is by virtue of what you do with your tongue. Now, James has already told us that when we are in a trial or a test, that we are to ask for wisdom. We need wisdom is what he's saying. And we're to ask because God gives liberally, doesn't he? And so now James is saying to his readers, friends, in order to pass this test of controlling your tongue. You will need some wisdom. So listen, what I have to say 
because what I have to say, because I'm here, listen to what I have to say, because I'm here to help you remain steadfast with how you use your tongue and to help you strive for maturity in Christ. And so what we need to know is that genuine faith yields to Christ the lordship of your tongue. Genuine faith yields to Christ the lordship of your tongue. It is his arena. Now, sometimes as we step into our Christian faith, we're saying, God, you can have control over this, you can have control over this, but oh, no, no, no. I have control over this. I can justify why I'm speaking this way. I have rights to speak this way. And God says, no, that's not true. And we can, along with David, pray this. Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Paul describes our condition before God as he builds his case that all have sinned. And he says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Sometimes you interact with people in this world. They can be friends. They can be family. They can be people you don't know. And they are behaving badly. And they're saying things that are awful and painful. And you're like, how in the world can they even you know, say the things that they're saying. It's because they do not have the Lord ruling their tongue. This is what unbelievers do. This is how they think. They are ruled in such a way that their mouths are open graves. Have you ever seen the show What Not to Wear? Hopefully you've not been on the show What Not to Wear, right? Or nominating people to be there, but you, you have Stacy and Clinton who, who somehow find out about a person who needs some help and they, they, they happen upon this person, but for a week or so, they've been filming this person with all the outfits that they have on, and of course, they're always terrible and, and awful, and, and you, know, you wouldn't be, want to be on the receiving end of those videotapes, right? But they come, and then they, they, they invite the person, and they say, let me show you some things. We took video of you, and you were wearing this, and you were wearing this, and then now we want to take you into the, it's like this mirrored thing where you can see all around you. And then they ask the questions, now, what are you thinking when you're wearing this? What do you think other people are thinking? And the people are like, oh, I don't know. And finally they kind of convince them with a $5,000 gift card to go shopping. And they go shopping, get some clothes, and finally they have this big reveal and they have new clothes, and they have a new hairdo, and they have new makeup, everything. Everyone is just cheering at that final reveal. What if we changed the show and called it What Not to Say? Uh-huh, yeah. What, what would happen if someone were to follow you with a video camera and capture what you say and then show it to you and say, now, what are you thinking? Why are you doing this? Don't you see that this clothing that you have, this, 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 this tongue that you're using is causing damage? Friends, it would be wonderful if we could get a total makeover of the mouth. But hear this. If you're a believer, you are already getting that. It's called progressive sanctification. It is a progressive, slow, steady change in your maturity as you grow in your walk with God. And one of the areas that he wants to work on is how you use your speech, how you communicate, whether with your fingers or your thumbs, whatever it might be. This is all part of your sanctification. So this morning, we want to look at this passage and we want to ask ourselves, or we want to look at this passage by saying, how do we control our tongues? And looking under three headings, the personal responsibility of the tongue, the powerful nature of the tongue, and finally, the, the pious hypocrisy of the tongue. Let's jump into the first one here, the personal responsibility of the tongue. Friends, one of the closest and clearest evidences that you have grown to maturity as a Christian, is that you have developed a certain mastery of the tongue. When you are known to be careful with your speech, 
you're known to be mature. And it would appear that James wants to quickly address this problem that he has probably observed in the church or knows is happening in the church at that time. And friends, it still is going on today. So we need to pay attention to it too. And it would appear that some people are saying, hey, I think I should have the opportunity to teach. Pastor Rod's always up there. You know, he's getting all the attention. I want to get up there and I want to teach. Or, you know, I should be in there teaching those young people because I've got something to say. Or I should be teaching in, you know, student ministries or, or at home group. I should be leading home group. Right? Th- that kind of attitude, that kind of mentality. And what James wants to respond to is this attitude that is present there. And let's, let's pick up here, because he's talking, first of all, about these teachers. And he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. James is saying, I know you think that you should be given the responsibility of teaching, but do you really wish to be judged with greater strictness? Oh, there's a greater strictness? I didn't know that. Yes, there is. Do you realize that teaching is a great responsibility? It isn't just about teaching. It's also about living. And if we open our Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, I don't need to go there, but what we'll see is that he has laid out responsibilities and qualifications for elders and for deacons. Why? Because with the privilege of handling the word, there also needs to be a character. A, a, a competency and a care for the flock. And to stand before God's people with an open Bible is not something anyone should take lightly, especially if you're called to teach or preach his word. We shouldn't be quick to, to throw novices in the pulpit. Or those who are still overwhelmed and mastered by a particular sin. In my years of of being a pastor, I was in Buffalo for a number of years, and one of the things that happened, and I think it happens here, is if you are a professional athlete and you happen to also be a Christian, or maybe you're you're a young Christian, all the youth pastors in the area are like, oh, we got to have this person speak. So you have this person who comes and speaks, who's not been discipled, who's not grounded, and they're there to motivate the young people, but they say things that are all like, woo, bing, bang. And I remember talking with some of these guys, and it's like, oh, you know, you you really didn't share the gospel accurately. I mean, I was trying to be honest with them. And, And it's because we're so quick to put people up, because we think that their very activity as an athlete gives them the platform to proclaim God's truth, and it does not. This is the worldly thinking that we we put into the plights of the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word requires some qualifications, some understanding of responsibilities. Now, having said all that, it's important for us to recognize that if we are going to be training people that we also need then to recognize giftedness, but also nurture that giftedness. So people have to start somewhere, right? And we've done that a lot in our church, and that's good. But we're not just like being careless and carefree with it. So we are, if we're teaching, and you are, if you're teaching in any capacity with the Bible open, you are accountable to the people that you're teaching. And that's why it's really important to remember uh, the Bereans in Acts 17 who searched the scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas had said was true. But even more serious is that any teacher, and I as a pastor, am accountable ultimately to God. He is the one that I'm accountable to first and foremost. So when I prepare my my sermons and hear this, I prepare them with you in mind. I'm thinking through the challenges you're facing. I'm thinking through the, the, the kind of struggles you may be going through or the joys that you're experiencing or the way that this text might be of help to you. And I'm thinking, I have faces that I'm thinking of that I want to help and I want to see uh, you know, God at work in their lives. And that's you. But ultimately, my main audience, the one I am seeking to please, is none other than God. And that should be true for any one of you. So if you're teaching children's ministry, you might say, well, I'm just, I'm just teaching you know, Daniel and the lion's den. It's just a little story. 
The goal is not to please the children. The goal is to please God. You have a responsibility with that word. You're sitting at home with your kids, Bible open. Your responsibility is to God more than it is to your children, right? There's a great responsibility that comes with the handling of the word of God. In particular, in a formal sense, if you're going to be teaching, you are held to a, a greater standard. And we who minister the word do so on behalf of God. And we serve as under-shepherds. And we strive to make sure that our words are not our own, but reflect the true understanding and reflection of what God is saying in his word. And so it's important that we're prepared, that we're ready, that we're studied, and we're, we're actually allowing God to speak through us. It's a very, very serious thing. And James, right from the beginning, says, this is a problem. Please hear this. But he says it's not just about teachers because he goes on and he says, and if anyone, who's anyone? Well, anyone else who's a part of the church does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. That word perfect means complete, mature, okay? He's a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. So here is the maturity statement in this passage. And as we've gone through James, we've recognized certain maturity statements in these different paragraphs. Let me just list a few off for you. Chapter 1, verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Chapter 1, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Again, these are pictures of what it means to be mature. Uh, chapter 1, verses 26, 26 through 27, I'm not going to read that, but basically we identified three categories there, a controlled heart, a compassionate heart, and a cleansed heart. Again, this is a picture of what maturity looks like. We saw in chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's a maturity statement there. This is how we're to live. This is how we're to act. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, last week, I will show my faith by my works. All right? Those are all maturity statements. But James is pushing for maturity in the church among believers generally and certainly among those who teach. And he is pointing out that one of the marks of spiritual maturity is to have control of your tongue. And he says further that if you control your tongue... You master um, and you control the rest of your body. My friends, that's, that's a key truth. The real evidence of maturity is what comes out of your mouth. Okay? And because God has implanted his word in your heart as a believer, it will come out in what you say. And here James is emphasizing what you say. So if you want to grow in maturity, begin to saturate your heart with God's word and work on what comes out of your mouth. Look, we all stumble. And so we have to work at this. Or on the other hand, if you want people to know how immature you are, ignore the word. Don't let it affect your heart. And speak freely. Trust me, they will know. This whole area then demands a spiritual self-discipline. And friends, this is one of the things I think the, the contemporary church struggles with. They see this, this kind of self-discipline as kind of an old puritanical type thing. And no, this is basic Christianity. Exercising yourself to work godliness. This is the, the putting off and the putting on. This is becoming more and more like Christ. This is progressive sanctification. Remember what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Once a word is spoken, it is like a bird that is let out of the cage. Now, do you remember the old, the old movies where something newsworthy happened someplace? And so a reporter finds out about it, and you see him running to this bank of phones, and he picks up the phone, and he starts calling, you know, boom, boom, boom. And he's calling New York, or he's calling Washington, or he's calling San Francisco. And he's like, hey, I've got, I've got a story for you. And so he communicates the story to the editor of the newspaper, or the Post, or I don't know, the Tribune. And the next thing you see is this swirling of papers on these machines, right? 
and the paper's going out on a truck. And finally, there's a guy standing on the corner saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Now, just use that image and think about this, because I love what Sinclair Ferguson reminds us of. He says, our tongues are the reporters of our hearts that spread everywhere we go what is in our hearts. Our tongues are the reporters of our hearts that spread everywhere we go what is in our hearts. Well, here you are at church, and everything that's coming out of your mouth is sweet, kind, gentle, loving, pure, but change the context. Things change. There's a different report. Okay? This tongue is a dangerous thing if it is left to itself. Just because you think it doesn't mean you need to speak it. Or as someone very wise in my family, who's not me, has said, just because it popped into your head doesn't mean that it needs to pop out of your mouth. Now, friends, that's important for us to hear. Why? Because in our culture today, you know what's happening? People are saying things, and they're saying things that are bad, and they're saying, well, you know, I want to be honest. I was thinking about it, and if I'm thinking about it, it wouldn't be honest of me unless I actually said it. So bad speech is couched as appropriate because of honesty. No, 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 friends. We are to control our tongues. Some things should not be said at certain times. There's a time to speak. There's a time to be silent. All right? So, this is the first thing. There is a personal responsibility of the tongue. We all are responsible with what comes out of our mouths, especially if we are those who are teachers and handle the word of God. There's a greater standard. Secondly, I want you to now notice the powerful nature of the tongue. James establishes the responsibility, but now he focuses in on the powerful nature of this tongue. And he uses a number of illustrations to show the powerful nature, in particular, the power to both guide and to destroy. So first of all, the power to guide. The tongue has the power to guide and to direct. And in these two illustrations, the, the bit in the horse's mouth and the, the ship's helm, just notice that although the tongue is disproportionately small, or these, these illustrations are showing us something that is disproportionately small, they are extremely powerful and capable of controlling the whole body. So we have the horse's bit. And it says here, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies uh, as well. Now, I don't know too much about horses. All right? I know they go, Nee, you know. Um, and I know that they eat hay and things like that. But one of the things I do know is that that bit in the horse's mouth is critical for actually guiding that horse. Now, I know some of you out there who probably are Horse riders that say, yeah, the bit's important, but we use our heels and all that kind of stuff. I, I, all right, okay. But that bit is critically important. Now, I've had the opportunity to ride horses a, a couple of times, and honestly, I always felt like it was an accident waiting to happen. Like the horse was just like, I'm going to have some fun today with this guy, right? Um, maybe that was just my fear speaking, but they're powerful creatures. And it's just, isn't it amazing when you, you see someone riding a horse, and you just think through, what did it take to get this creature so that you could maneuver it that way? When I think of this image of a horse with a bit in its mouth, I think of the, the old movie Ben-Hur. Now, if you know the story of Ben-Hur, it's a great movie to watch. It's a little bit gruesome. But one of the key things, it's all about chariot racing. And it's about these chariots that are, that are led by you know, four horses, six horses, eight horses, and you have all these straps and reins that are all coming together, but all the horses have a bit in their mouth. And they're controlled by the person who is, who is riding that chariot, that charioteer. And he's controlling those horses with those bits 
in the mouth. And we have the ship's rudder. We'll notice what it says. Look at the ships, he says. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, sometimes we have a jaded view of history as if big things weren't around back in history. Scripture records for us that when Paul was shipwrecked, there were 276 passengers that were shipwrecked with him. It's a lot of people. Back in that time, you had the Romans who had these huge ships. There were ships that carried over a thousand people. So when he says here, though they are so large, he's not talking about a little fishing boat with a larger sail. He's talking about this massive ship. They are large ships, and they are directed or guided by a very small rudder. And again, notice what he says. The winds drive the sails, but the massive ships are guided by that very small rudder. Still, the pilot is directing the ship, but he directs it with a very small rudder. You, you get the point. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Control the tongue, and you will have the power to guide and to, to direct the rest of the body. It's a really, really helpful tool. And what it does is it helps us understand that one of the key areas that we need to control so that the rest of the body can be under control is the tongue. That's helpful. It says in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts great things. So both the bit and the rudder must overcome the strong and contrary forces to guide the horse or to direct the ship. The horse is a powerful animal that can be used for much good work if it can be guided. A ship, of course, is useful for transporting cargo and people, but if the rudder is broken, it's going to be difficult. It's actually going to be driven wherever the winds take them. So in order for good things to happen, both the ship and the horse must be under the control of a strong hand. In other words, the person who has the tongue doesn't say, well, I have a tongue and it's going to say what it's going to say. No, there has to be a strong-handedness in the heart of that person to say, I'm going to capture control of this thing and I'm going to steer it in the right direction. Now, the old children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, is a lie. And James knows it, and you and I know it. Our tongues have the power for both good and for evil. Just listen to the couple of Old Testament passages here that just describe that for us. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Have you ever been the recipient of that? Jab, 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 jab. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Let me just say this. It takes more work to bring healing words than it takes to jab someone's heart. That comes naturally. Wisdom comes with effort, spiritual effort. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. So if you have a problem with controlling your tongue, let me encourage you, read through the book of Proverbs over and over again and pay attention to wisdom. Pray for God's help to change so that the tongue has the power to direct or to guide, but the tongue also has the power to destroy. And we have a number of illustrations that James uses here. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. A spark is the idea. And of course, we who live here in Northern California, we understand what that looks like. I mean, even today, we're here, some of us with power, some without power, because of the fear of a spark. And we know what kind of devastation can happen. I mean, we all probably remember the campfire up in paradise that took the lives of 85 people, or the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa, and we help people who are trying to recover up there by sending aid. And right now, there's the Kincaid Fire 
I mean, this is, we live with this. We, we step out of church and we breathe the reality of that. Okay? Now, someone might not think that throwing a cigarette butt out or a bottle out of the window if you're driving down the freeway can cause that much trouble. And they might say to themselves, stop being a worry wart. It's just a small cigarette. It's no big deal. And most of the time, it's not a big deal. Or they might say, I don't know why you're so uptight. Just a small glass bottle being tossed out of the window, it's not going to do anything. You're just being paranoid. The problem is, those are two ways in which a spark, a fire, can happen. Now, set aside the littering problem there, right? Don't be throwing stuff out of your window when you're driving down the freeway. In each case, if we don't have control of our tongue, we can litter the roads of our lives with destructive potential. Some of that litter, if you take the analogy of the cigarette butt, might pose an immediate threat. In other words, something you say might have some immediate response and here's a fire. But sometimes the things you say sit on the side of the road for a while. And you forget about them. And the sun beats down and something happens. I don't know, maybe a rodent comes and nudges the bottle or something like that. And the refraction in the light creates a spark in the grass and boom. Now, just some analogies that I'm coming up with just to help us think through that, that what happens with the tongue can cause a great fire. It might be immediate and it might be down the road, but it's still there. And this is the point that James is making. The tongue, when not controlled, is like a spark that can cause a brush fire, a forest fire, and ultimately cause far more destruction than you can ever imagine. Now it says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Scholars are debating, actually, as to where the punctuation is supposed to go in, in, in this particular verse, in verse 6. But the, the point that is being made is this, that the, the tongue unchecked is a deadly and powerful source of evil that taints every part of our being. It is the fruit of inflamed passions. So, friends, we must be warned of this incredible danger so that we don't become arsonists with our tongues, both purposefully and carelessly. James has already said, if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. He said, true religion that is pure before God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now listen to what he says as he continues on here. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the, the entire course of the life, and set, is set on fire of hell. When James speaks about the world of unrighteousness, he's talking about how the world has gotten into our heart and then is exposed by what we say. You know, you know the expression garbage in, garbage out, right? We take in the world, and often what happens if we are not controlling our tongue is that it comes out. Uh, and listen, I've, I've been a pastor long enough. I've been with people who love the Lord and I find them in different situations. I remember one, one time there was a, a gentleman in our church, good guy, solid, solid believer, and he came over to help me work on my house. This was not here in California, so all of you can go, oh, okay. Um, but it was in Michigan, and we're, we're working away, and he, he hammered something wrong, hit his nail, and there was a word that came out. And as soon as he said it, he was just horrified. And it's not because he walked around saying that word, but we all have words in our head. And if we're watching TV or reading certain things, those words come up again, and something happens, and we're like, whoosh, whoosh, ah, where did that come from? It's the world that is out there that gets into our heart that comes out through our mouth. This is the, it's, it's a world of unrighteousness. We're living in a world that is full of unrighteousness. And friends, not only swear words, but even thoughts and ideologies come out because we're dwelling on them, we're thinking about them, and they are revealed. Sometimes they're revealed in the advice that we give that is contrary to Scripture. So it's a reminder that a mature believer not only learns to control his tongue, a mature believer is careful not to love the world. And that's, of course, what we find 
in 1 John, John is telling us, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, pride of life is not from the Father, but uh, is from the world. So the, the, the challenge here is to say, if I know that what I say is a reflection of what's in my heart, what am I allowing into my heart? How am I guarding my heart so that what comes out of my mouth isn't destructive? So oh, you're just panicking. You just don't want us to do certain things. No, I want you to live in the world because the world, you're going to walk down the street and you're going to hear things you shouldn't hear. You go to the mall, you're going to hear things you shouldn't hear. You go to a baseball game or a basketball game, you're going to hear things that are going to affect you. You've got to find some way to filter those things out. That's what it means to control the heart and to control the tongue. He talks here about it sets on fire by hell. In other words, this hell is the source of the destructive power of this tongue. And that hell, of course, comes from this word Gehenna. And that Gehenna was a place outside of city. Initially, it was the place where the Jews, when they were when they had drifted away from God and were worshiping Molech, were offering their children as sacrifices to God, the god Molech, to appease him. That same location became the city dump. And the city dump is where they would burn the trash. And so the fires were ongoing 24-7. And that's why when John and Jesus even talk about um, you know, the, the, the result or where, where people are eventually going to go, the, the place of eternal punishment or torment, they describe it as Gehenna. Okay. Now, this is where then an unbridled tongue and the stuff that comes out of the unbridled tongue comes from. Now, friends, hear this. Most Christians will shrink back from sins like homosexuality and rape and child abuse and murder as being from the pit of hell. But they're able to tolerate sins such as gossip and slander and deceit put-downs as not being that big of a deal. Jerry Bridges calls those respectable sins. But they still find their source in the pit of hell. And so we need to, we need to kind of reframe our thinking about what is sin and what is actually going on here when we tolerate the things that we tolerate. So the tongue is a fire. Secondly here, the tongue is a stain. It's built into this section on the fire, but I think it's worth highlighting um, by itself. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. You get up this morning, you get ready for church, put a nice shirt on, and you have a cup of coffee at home, and then you spill coffee on the front of you, and you know, your spouse comes along and says, let's go to church. You're not going to say... Ah, it's okay. No, you're going to say, I'm going to go have to change my, my shirt. Why? Because it's stained. No one likes to walk around with something stained. In fact, other people notice the stains that you have, right? I want you to panic over that, a few of you here this morning, right? Don't panic over that, but the reality is we all, at times, find ourselves in a situation where we have to have a stain. And our failure, then, to control the tongue is like a stain. People are known by how they use their tongues. There goes Mrs. Gossip. She can tell you everything you don't have the right to know. And you probably have a person in mind. There goes Mr. Slander. He loves to tell lies about others and start rumors that he hopes will hurt other people. You probably know people like that. There goes Mrs. Complainer. Nothing is ever good enough for her as she will find a problem somewhere, somehow. Here comes Mr. Putdown. We worthless, good-for-nothing worms and maggots need to be aware. Right, just saying, this is, people are known many times by how they use their tongue. And we ultimately categorize people sometimes that way. If people were to ask People were asked to give you a one-word description about how you use your tongue. What would they say? 
I'm not asking for you to give answers. That was rhetorical. Okay? But what would you say? How would they describe you? How would it be a positive word or a negative one? What would you rather hear? Liar, slander, complainer, discourager, reckless, bitter? Or would you prefer to hear honest, truthful, supportive, motivator, encourager, careful, joyful, purposeful? And friends, it's, it's sobering to be reminded that the stain of the tongue affects the whole body. The whole course, in other words, all the ups and downs of life, the tongue affects. Just ask yourself, how much of my troubles in this world are directly connected to how we do or how I do or do not control my tongue? Just ask yourself that question. I mean, sit down sometime and reflect how much of the trouble I'm facing is actually as a result of what I'm doing with my mouth. It might be a window of enlightenment for you. The next one, the tongue is an untamed beast. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. I think we can all relate to this analogy. Probably many of you have been to a place like SeaWorld where you've seen whales and dolphins and seals all under the control of, of man probably observe people with amazing hunting hawks and parrots. We've seen certainly farmers with cows and oxen, and we've seen horses. Maybe we've been to a circus. It's kind of, don't see that too much anymore, but a circus where you see trained elephants and lions and tigers. When I went to Mexico a few years ago on a cruise, we stopped at um, Ensenada and took a little trip down to this, I found what it's called now, but there's a blowhole, and in there, you could go in and you could spend some money and spend some time playing with a little tiger. So I did. And it was great. And it's just this little thing, you know, you know, just cute little big paws and all that kind of stuff. But they grow up. <laughs> um, and they're maybe not quite as cute, but man can tame them to some degree. Right? And so this is what James is saying. Man has control over these incredible beasts. But there's one beast he cannot tame, and that's the human tongue. James is saying that the tongue will always be a struggle. We'll always have to work at it. It's not a box in our spiritual life that we can check off and say, accomplished, done. It'll always be there an arena that we have to kind of make sure is under our control, under the control of the Spirit, under the control of God's Word. Then there's the tongue as a poison. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. A restless tongue, friends, is a sign of a restless heart. And a restless heart is a heart that isn't resting in Jesus. Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. So when our tongues are restless, when we're not resting in Christ, we will allow the poison under our tongues like a snake to bite as we speak. And I'm sure that you've been the recipient of that. I'm probably sure, if you're like anyone else, you've been the person biting. This is a challenge for us. Now it could be gossip, it could be slander, it could be a rash response to someone's comment. You're now biting off their head. We use that analogy. It could be the way you yelled at your kids. It could be how you spoke to your spouse. When we refuse to control our tongues and let loose with our lips, the poison in our hearts bears fruit with our words and can cause devastating damage. Now, friends, the point that he's making is this. Our tongues are extremely powerful. They can guide, can direct, or they can destroy, or they can build up. What's it going to be? Now, James doesn't get specific in his application, but there's a few areas of application that are worth at least our attention. Let me just highlight a few of them for you um, that we can kind of work our way through just briefly here. First is gossip. Kent Hughes tells the story of a physician in a Midwestern city 
who was the victim of a disgruntled patient. And they tried to ruin him personally. So they, they spread all these rumors about, about him. And almost it undermined um, his business. Several years later, this, this patient came back to him, not only apologizing for gossiping, but asking for forgiveness. And he granted forgiveness. The problem was they didn't change the reputation. The damage had been done. And this man, although granting forgiveness, always looked into people's eyes that were coming to him wondering whether or not they believed the rumors that had gone out there. And so, friends, there, there can be a relational resolve, but there's a lasting effect when it comes to gossip. Gossip veils itself in acceptable questions. <laughs> All right? Have you heard? <laughs> Did you know? You know, they tell me, keep this to yourself, but. I don't believe it's true, but I was told now, I wouldn't tell you except that I know it will go no further. You see, we're all Christians here, so we don't use that kind of language. We just say, would you pray for so-and-so? They're going through some marital difficulties, and she's really angry with her husband because he was watching pornography the other night, and would you pray? You see the problem there? And sometimes we, we allow this prayer category to be a place where we go, bleh, did you know? And there's innuendo. And innuendo is a seemingly innocent statement that hints at something negative. It's a statement that leaves the door open for negative interpretation. Mrs. Smith told the truth today. Jim arrived at work sober today. Today, Sally was driving the speed limit, and she wasn't reckless. I mean, all those statements are implying the opposite is the norm. It's an innuendo. There's flattery. Flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. Then there's slander, there's meanness, there's sarcasm, there's ridicule, there's boasting, all right? And all these things can be ways in which our tongues are, are abusing what God has called us to be as his children. Now, friends, let's continue on here just for sake of time. We've seen the responsibility we have with our tongues. We've seen the powerful nature of the tongue. But now James wants to get to the heart of the matter and it's this, that we can be guilty of pious hypocrisy with our tongues. See, he's laying a foundation because he wants to get to this point. This is, might want to say, the, uh, the, the illustration from the assembly that he's using here to point out the problem. With it, our tongues, we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's identifying here the hypocrisy. We can be so pious, we can be so righteous, we can come into church, we can sing great songs, we can have wonderful discussions about theology or just being kind to people. We can listen to the sermon, we can even take notes. And we drive home and someone cuts us off and we just come unkindled. And we say things and our arms are moving and we might even get out of the car. Or maybe we go out for a meal after church. I mean, a lot of people do that. And the, the waitress brings your food, and it's not cooked just right. Or she's missed something that you said. And the psh, blood flows, and the mouth opens, and bleh! But oh, church was wonderful. Or maybe you just start yelling at your kids because of something insignificant. Friends, this is... This is how we are. We are hypocrites because our mouths betray what's in our hearts. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And part of that love in our neighbors as ourselves is that we speak to them in such a way that would honor 
them. And friends, see, the description that we have here is not ultimately a man-to-man problem. It's a man-to-God problem. Because he says here, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We are treating humankind made in the likeness of God in a disrespectful way. And ultimately that means we are speaking against God. It's not a good thing. So then he confronts the hypocrisy. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not, so, ought not to be so. The phrase from the old John Wayne movies summarize it best. White men speak with forked tongue. Right? You say one thing, but your heart is saying another. This kind of hypocrisy is not a reflection of maturity. The heart of being a Christian, of growing in maturity, is that we are so affected in our hearts by the word of God that we bear good fruit. So there's no poison coming out of our mouths. There's no slander. There's no gossips or put-downs. We're called to use our tongues for the edification of others, to build them up, to, to help them see Christ, to help them grow. And so he gives a couple of illustrations to help drive that home. First of all, a spring. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? I'm talking here about the source. Your heart is the source. Your heart is God's. It's going gonna, it's gonna to produce the kind of water that comes from the, the Spirit of God. It doesn't have two different spouts. So what's happening here is Hypocritical because it's not a reflection of who Christ is in you. Then there's the, this foliage. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, why? Because like produces like. Trees produce fruit of its own kind. You're a child of God. You're going to produce fruit. You should be producing fruit that is mature and is a reflection of your Christianity. And then, of course, water. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Your, your heart has been made one way. It should not be producing something that is contrary to it. See, that's simply the, the picture here. You have a new heart, and that new heart should be producing good fruit that is rooted in God's Word. So, friends, I want to conclude here just by giving five ways that we can approach harnessing what's going on with our tongue. We've seen the damage that it causes. We've seen the responsibility that we all have, and we've seen the hypocrisy of what is true about us. There's not a person in this room that isn't being addressed by James. So how do we make progress here? Number one, recognize. They all begin with the letter R, so that will help you out. Recognize. In other words, acknowledge your sin, see your sin as God sees it. Call it what God calls it. If God calls it gossip, you acknowledge it as gossip. Don't soften the blow. You know, sometimes I say some things I really mean to say. It wasn't me that said that. Well, who was it, pray tell? It was you. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. That's confession. Seeing our sin as God sees it is confession. We must do that. Otherwise, we're, we're, we don't have a foundation to build upon and to, and to make any, any changes with. Secondly, and it's the word repent. Once we see it as God sees it, we're, we're, we're now asking God to, to cauterize our lips. This is how Isaiah prayed in Isaiah 6. Let's just look at that passage. There's going to be some principles quickly here. In this passage, Isaiah says he's, he's, he's seeing God in a vision, and he is, he is overcome by his sinfulness. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's a confession, there's a cleansing by virtue of the cauterization of his lips. It's a spiritual picture here. Then having been cleansed, Isaiah was ready to serve. Verse 8, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So you can see this transition in his heart. This is who I am. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, who will go for me as a representative, someone to speak for me, I will do that with lips that have been cleansed. You see the picture there? This is what repentance does. It forgives you of your sin and it sets you on the path of serving God. Third, renew. See yourself as a child of God who needs to continue to grow to be more and more like Christ. Now in Ephesians chapter four, we have this image of putting off and putting on. And I wanna read this, but I want you to notice verse 23, because it's key. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, that's verse 22, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not just put off and put on, we'll get to that next, but it's to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, you have to be convinced in your mind that you have a problem and you still have a problem and that this, this progressive sanctification needs to take place and that the habit that you see being exposed by God steadily through your life is real, is true, and that it is not only wrong, but it is damaging, it is sinful, but it's hurtful, and it's old man clothing that needs to be replaced with new man clothing. You see that? So it's not just putting off one thing and putting on. That could actually be pharisaical. What he's saying is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And we always need to be mindful that this is an area that we need to grow in. Then we move to replace. This is the put off and the put on. I've been renewed in the spirit of my mind. I see this as sinful. And so now I'm going to remove the gossip, the slander, uh, the, the hateful speech, the poison, whatever it might be. And I'm going to replace it with what is wonderful and pure. Now, friends, it takes discipline to put off. It doesn't just happen. You have to work hard at it. You have not worked hard in the sense of you haven't thought about having the clothes of gossip or slander. They just happen naturally. They're sinful behaviors. And you've done it for so long. And so now, with intensity and hard work, recognizing it, putting it off, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and now putting on what is healthy. And here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll continue reading here. It says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, but it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 31 there is natural. You don't have to think about being bitter and full of wrath and being angry. But verse 32 requires hard work. One is passive. One is active. It takes work to be kind, doesn't it? It takes work to be tenderhearted. It takes work to be forgiving. So there's a need to replace. And you're like, I, I thought, wouldn't it be great we could just stop at repentance? Well, if you're a child of God, it doesn't stop at repentance. It continues on. There's the work of progressive sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And finally, I'm going to use the word reinforce. This, this comes as a result of maintaining a regular, daily time with God in his word. Friends, that is, that is a path, that is a roadmap, so to speak, for us to help us to control our tongues. And friends, I want to encourage you. This is an area that we need to be honest about. This is not an area that I want you to go home and point fingers about. I want you to go home and look in the mirror. 
I want you to think about your own walk with God. We're all affected by this, aren't we? None of us has arrived. And sometimes it's the circumstances of life that are the test that reveal to us what's in our hearts. And James is saying, don't throw in the towel. Remain steadfast. Learn about yourself. Ask God for wisdom. Apply it to your heart. Let it bear fruit. Because there's all sorts of influences out there that are trying to guide you in a certain direction. And you, as a child of God, must master that tongue so that it is steered in a gospel-centered direction, not in the direction the world wants you to go. But that requires work, spiritual work, but work for the glory of God. We're just going to close in a word of prayer, so band, I'm just going to call it a day here as we pray, okay? Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the hard reality and truth that you give us through this letter. We can laugh about how our tongues are often so expressive and so damaging, but Lord, the reality is this is a serious issue. And Lord, I ask that that hearts right now would be softened, that hearts would be willing to be taught, that there would be humility, that there would be in in a soul a confession of sin, but in that confession that there would be hope. Because as your children, our sin has already been paid for. But Lord, you want us to grow in our maturity as your children. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to encourage one another to do that. May we not be shocked when we share with someone that we have an area here that we struggle with with our tongue. May we seek to pray for one another and to encourage one another. And then, Lord, if we are struggling in certain areas, Lord, give us wisdom to shut them down and to replace them with things that flow out of a walk with you that are fashioned and shaped by your word from the Holy Spirit, helping us to be what you want us to be in this world. We ask this in your name. Amen.